Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. All right, welcome this morning. We are in our sermon series, Robes, Candles, Smells, and Bells, How God Gave the World His Kingdom with New Priests, New Temples, and a Radical New Approach to Worship. And uh, I... When I set up this sermon series, I was, I was excited about what it could be, but I, I didn't realize like, how, how spiritually impactful it would be, more than just our identity shifting and understanding um, that we're meant to be, our, our identity is supposed to shift to, let's do at least maybe the side lights. Oh, you can't see that? Okay. Um, but uh, we didn't just want to shift our, our identity but I, I think that what God wants to do in this, in this sermon series is he wants us to change who we are from the inside out. Last week we talked about how we have a different kind of sacrifice now that we are a, a part of this kingdom of priests. And the different kind of sacrifices, we're moving from butchers to lambs. Where Jesus as the high priest didn't kill a bunch of lambs to give us salvation, he sacrificed himself. He gave his own body and his own life so that the world could have a mediator who could stand before God himself and could bring us into his presence along with him. That's still true, not just of Jesus for us, but as we, priests, must follow our high priest, the great high priest, Christ. And if we want to see God's kingdom and God's presence come into this world, it's going to require us to be living sacrifices, holy, pleasing, acceptable to God, where our lives are poured out so that others might experience God's presence. So we participate through service, dying to self, and we participate by embracing death so that it has no fear over us. Uh, different kind of sacrifice. This, I, I think that uh, it's been 500 years since the Reformation, and that 500 years, we've lost, we've lost some of the reason for the Reformation. The Reformation itself was built to strip away the power of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church that had been built to keep people from entering into God's presence so that the power of the church was concentrated among the few. And what God wanted to do was tear that down again, and so he brought along the Reformation. Medieval Christians, they believed that the church was a part of what they called the celestial hierarchy, where everything in the heavens and the earth had its place in this great hierarchy or, or chain of existence. The great chain begins with God, and then the archangel, and then the angels, and then the heavenly hierarchy then has this like earthly parallel in the sacraments that um, certain people are able to then bring the presence of God through the sacraments, and then people then everyday average people are at the bottom of the hierarchy. And those who administer the sacraments, the priests in the medieval times, 
who then give them to the laity. The salvation comes through the sacraments and the priests who administer them. And the priests are this unique class of individual who have been gifted by God to contemplate the things of God. Now that was what everybody believed in the 14 and 1500s. That hierarchy depended on God himself ordaining a king who then oversaw all people through the power structures of the, vast, the, um, the feudal system of lords on the secular side and then within the church, this feudal system of lords that we called priests who were actually given themselves lands and territories that they would then use to have authority over people so that they had to enter into this hierarchy. And rightly so, the Protestant Reformation came along in the 1600s the 1500s, and uh, Luther challenged this notion because he rejected the church's claim. He believed that the church has this, not a unique class that comes from tradition of these priests, but from the authority of Scripture, all followers of Jesus are a part of a nation of priests. And I, I think that we, we like to believe that, because we are Americans and no one is better than anybody else and we don't have a royalty or a nobility to us, right? Now it's just a meritocracy. That's what we believe in our heads is that everybody's equal and so we, we kind of apply it to church and so no one listens to the pastor because he's just a guy and that's, that's actually okay. We actually believe that but a lot of times in church they don't believe it. <laughs> like, like they still act like there's still kind of two classes of people, the, those who administer the sacraments or preach the word and everybody else, but we're still trying to tear that down. Luther said this. He claimed that faith alone is the true priestly office. Faith alone is the true priestly office. So when you say, I put my faith in Christ, you become yourself a part of the class of priests that will mediate God's presence to the world. Was it weird last week when I made you serve communion to each other? Is that a little, little weird? Uh, that, it's, a, it's a radical act because it's decentralizing power in our congregation from the special elders and deacons who do that sort of work to say that we, the people, have this responsibility to bring one another to the table and serve the elements as a means of God's grace. It's a powerful transformational action. And we're probably going to do it more and we're going to continue to find ways to engage us all in the work of this priestly work God has called us to. But it's not just special things like communion. Your whole life is meant to be serving as priests, mediating between God and creation. This is what Romans 12 says. Uh, hold on. I'm in charge of the slides today, so I actually have to remember to forward them. Okay, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, that is truly the way to worship him. We talked about the different roles of priests to understand what Peter meant when he called us these, these kingdoms, kingdom of priests. But today we're going to be talking about how priests intercede on behalf of others. Because that was one of the key roles that priests had had in the ancient world under the temple system um, in Israel. 
So we're going to go to Second Chronicles chapter 29. I know you guys were reading that this week. It just was part, no. Second yeah, Chronicles chapter 29. It's probably a place you've never been, but it's like, there's some incredible stuff. So King Hezekiah, he comes to power after like a string of bad kings. Now, if you, if you have read the Old Testament, you're going to, if you read First and Second Kings, you read First and Second Chronicles, what you're going to realize is that number one, like these guys are really bad at following God. Like that's like the one thing. And that's the crazy thing about the Bible is it's a group of people always saying over and over again, we messed up and God was faithful. Where if you read, if you read any of the other ancient religious texts, it says we're powerful because we're connected to a powerful God. Therefore, the king is never wrong. Every other ancient society believed that their king was never wrong. But in Israel, you know what they said? Hey, that guy was a bad dude. And that guy was a bad dude. And then the next one after that, he was a really bad dude. And then his son died when he was like four. And then the nephew, he was even a worse dude. Like it just like goes on and on and on. And Hezekiah comes along. And this is, uh, this is the end of, hold on. That got broken up into two parts. Okay. Um, this is what it says. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20. Okay. Okay, that's a little later. Um, but it, sa- it says this, when Ahaz, Ahaz is so bad that he has, uh, he's built these idols. So Assyria, Damascus, they take over the northern kingdom, and then they take over the southern kingdom. And Ahaz, he realizes that he can't win in this battle against the northern tribes of Israel. They're in a civil war. And so he aligns himself with Assyria so that Assyria... Will, will give him the power to stay as king. So he's willing to trade away his birthright to stay as king. And because of that, he said, you know what? If the gods of Damascus are so powerful to save us from Israel, the northern ten tribes, then we're going to adopt them. And so he brings them in. He puts idols of the Damascus kings and gods all over the temple. So he's, he's a bad dude. And then it gets so bad that he decides... In this way, he says, he followed the detestable practice of the pagan nations and the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense, the pagan shrines on the hills under every green tree. And then it says this, even during the time of trouble, King Ahab continued to reject the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. Since these gods helped the kings of Aram, they'll help me too, so I will sacrifice to them. But instead, they led to his ruin and the ruin of all Judah. The king took the various articles from the temple of God and broke them into pieces. He shut the door of the Lord's temple so that no one could worship there. And he set up altars of pagan gods in every corner of Jerusalem. He made pagan towns and shrines in all the towns of Judah for offering sacrifices to other gods. In this way, he aroused the anger of God, the God of his ancestors. This is... uh, like, this is Hezekiah's father. Ahaz is just the worst. And so, what happens? Hezekiah is born. He becomes king at age 25, and we have no idea why he was good. We have no idea what changed that he said, I'm going to make this radical transformation, but Hezekiah comes to power at age 25, and I don't know a bunch of wise 25-year-olds. I don't know if you've been around 25-year-old men lately. They're not like particularly wise or a good group. But Hezekiah just happened to be a really great guy. 
And he comes and he reopens the temple. He repairs the temple. He purifies the temple and all the, the Levites. He takes, he takes 16 days. It takes a, like a full-time crew 16 days to clear out the temple of all the pagan things that have been included in the temple. And we've been talking about the church as the temple, that we are not only just priests, but we ourselves, as the body of Christ, are God's literal dwelling place in the world. That we're little mobile temples, that God has infused us with his spirit's presence, and wherever his people go, we bring God's presence with us. And in a lot of ways, we're just like the temple in Ahaz. We are just like the temple before Hezekiah comes around. We as Jesus' people, the church, we don't look like the dwelling place of God. I don't know if you've been paying attention to how the church has been doing the last few years in our country. If you have, you'll notice we're full of idols. You'll notice that we have sold our birthright to foreign gods. And we've said, you know what? We're going to let somebody else rule over us. Idolatry. It looks a lot, and it is about power. We talked a little bit last week about how ancient kings would place statues of themselves in, um, in towns so that the people would know who the real king was. And we do that too in our own hearts and in our own organizations because I idolatry is always about power. And so the types of idolatry that we have is we, we ask, okay, well, who has power over our church? And one of the idols that we have just let make a big statue in the middle of the church is around control and power. We've basically said that we want authority over all things, and we're willing to take it by force through politics, through um, coercion, shame, guilt, uh, through building political parties. We, we will do anything we can to get our way. That's one of the idols of the church. There's the idol of the self, where our churches and we as individuals have said, I am a radically autonomous individual who has every right to do whatever I want, no matter what, and I myself am God. We have money. The, the church and us, the people who are the church, we've said, you know what? We're going to find ways to gather strength and power through money, and it is going to drive every decision that we make. And so we're going to have a church gathering that's built around getting people here to give so that we can fund the organization rather than gathering people to be transformed in the way of Jesus. We've said, I'm going to make decisions in my life based on how much money I can get and how much power I can have over others to serve me. That's what money's all about, right? We want to be wealthy so that I can coerce you into serving me by doing services and creating things on my behalf. That's what money is. And we want to gather as much of it as we can so we have power over more people to engage their need for sustenance by giving them a little bit of money so I can get what I want. Safety is one of our idols. We've determined that us being safe is the absolute highest good. And so rather than taking risks, we build, we build massive, strong walls around our communities. We build Christian schools so our kids can't be infected by the world. We, build, we erect monuments around our families so that we can be protected from the world around us. We build, 
We build cities of Christians so that we're free of the influence of the world. Safety is a God that we serve. We, we're trying to conserve. Sa- safety forces us to then try to conserve what we have. So we live in a, in a, in a mindset of poverty. So we think that we have to take and hold whatever we have. Um, I was reading a, an article by Abigail Disney, uh, who's, I think, the daughter of Roy Disney. And she was talking about how, from her youngest memories, she was told that her job was to protect the dynastic wealth that was given to their family. Hundreds of millions and billions of dollars through the Disney Corporation. And she said, I, was, I never even thought to question that until she was like 50 years old, that that dynastic wealth that had been entrusted to them was a poison, not a blessing. And that's too often what we do is we, we try to take what we have and keep it rather than spend it for the things that are meant to. It'd take a long time to go through all the idols of the kingdom and the people of God and clean out our church. My bet is it would take more than 16 days for us to root out all the ways that we have given ourselves over to the gods of this world. And that's not just our, the church as a whole, but that's our lives as well. Some of the temple of your body have been overrun with idols. Whether it's the same kind of radical autonomy that we desire, individualism that says I'm, I'm on my own and I'm going to keep people away from me, money, politics, sex, there's all sorts of idols and all those idols have individual ways that they are strangling out the presence of God. But I love this story of Hezekiah because after a long line of terrible kings, it just takes one good king to transform the trajectory of the kingdom. It takes one good king to set the path right again. I like to imagine you're walking along a path and you're in the woods and you realize that you're on a parallel path going different directions away from each other. And you look down at your map or your GPS or whatever, and you see yourself going. Do you know when you're like close enough that it looks like you're on the same road, but then like you start to veer off, and then it's like redirecting, and then it has adds 17 minutes to your time you're driving. You know, like those. That's that's what's going on. Is like you're on this path, and it only takes one step of a pivot to move back into alignment with where we're meant to go. That's the way it was, even with God's kingdom. That's the way it is with families, too. Generational sin will, like, I don't know if you've looked back at your own family, but my bet is your family is probably full of different types of generational sin. If you look at my dad's family in particular, you know, we can look back four or five generations and just see brokenness, um, really terrible relationships with fathers and sons and really some of the most selfish people you've ever met on that side of the family. But then, but then, ha theos, but God entered in. And he transformed my dad's life by the gospel through people who loved him and cared for him. And it shifted generations of followers of Jesus. Same thing on my mom's side. She's a first-generation follower of Jesus. Somebody invited them to go to Second Baptist 
and it transformed the trajectory of generations of people. That's what happens. Some of you are still fighting generations of sin, of abuse, of philandering, poverty, drugs, alcohol, unemployment, abusive mouths, abusive bodies, terrible marriages, divorce. But all it takes is to say, I want something different. To set your path in a new direction. And God himself will take you where you want to go. It only takes one decision to take your life and be transformed. You say, I'm not going to go on that path anymore. I'm going to choose marriage counseling. I'm going to choose recovery. I'm going to choose therapy. I'm going to choose community. I'm going to choose walking with God today. And it transforms the trajectory of your life. With one fell swoop, Hezekiah transforms a generation of Judah. They cleanse the temple. They, they offer all of these sacrifices to purify them for service in the temple. They offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And it has to start with Hezekiah as the authority figure. He himself has to go as a king priest, offer sacrifices so that the Levites then could enter in and do their work. Before, they had, before the, the Levites had even repented, Hezekiah himself had to go before God as a priestly representative and offer a sacrifice so that they might be cleansed. And they offer a sacrifice not just for the sins of Judah. Now this is the split kingdom when you had the two tribes of the south and the ten tribes of the north, and they were at war with one another. But Hezekiah offers sacrifices not just for Judah, but for all of Israel as a gift to prepare the way for the gospel, for the good news of God's kingdom through the temple to come to life. And they offer, they offer a huge sacrifice. We're talking like 700 bulls and like 7,000 lambs, and it's just this, this massive deal, and they have to get all the Levites in there to help prepare the meat. And, and they w still weren't clean enough to enter the temple um, and then Hezekiah does something, and I, I want to read that. Since many of the people had not purified themselves, and this is, this is uh, so they, they had the initial cleansing of the temple, and it was in the spring, so Hezekiah said, we're going we're gonna to have Passover. They hadn't had the Passover for years and years, and he's like, we're going back, we're going to do Passover. And since many of the people had not purified themselves, the Levites had to slaughter their Passover lamb for them. Okay. So what would normally happen is you would work to cleanse your house and to cleanse your life in preparation for Passover. They would get rid of every bit of leaven in their house because it was a part of the Passover feast, but it was meant to be a, a, a representation of them driving sin out of their homes so that they were worthy to offer a sacrifice of this lamb so that when they pasted the blood above the doorway, it was a representation of God's cleansing work in their home. But many of them were, were so evil that they couldn't enter in themselves. And a, a priest who had been sacrificed, or who had, been, who had become um, clean, he himself had to offer the, sac the Passover lamb for them. And then it says, many of those who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves. But King Hezekiah prayed for them. And they were allowed to eat the Passover meal anyway even though this was contrary to the requirements of the law. For Hezekiah said, May the Lord who is good pardon those who decide to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even though they're not properly cleansed for the ceremony. 
And the Lord listened to Hezekiah's prayer, and he healed the people. It's easy to get lost in the story, but what's happening here is, even though the people were not worthy, Hezekiah himself went before God and asked that God would graciously allow their sacrifices to be pleasing to him. It was a gift of grace, not because they were worthy and not because they were without sin, but because Hezekiah went before God for them. Instead of the law, instead of, instead of reading the letter of the law and going back to Leviticus and saying these people don't belong and them being excluded from the temple, like that's an easy call. Hezekiah could have said, you know what? Only those of you who have been righteous, only those of you who have followed God, only those of you who have offered the right sacrifices can come in. But Hezekiah said, no, we need everybody. And so he threw open the doors and said, you belong here. And some of you have been living under the law too long. Some of you have been living in God's judgment. You need God's grace. And that's what God wants to do with us as priests, is he wants us to be conduits of God's grace so that we pray for other people and we give them God's presence by our presence in their lives so that when they come to God, they're ready. That's the pattern that we see in Hezekiah. It's also the pattern that we see in Jesus is that before we were still enemies with God, God himself said, I'm going to make a sacrifice so great that you can enter into my presence without being cleansed because Jesus died for you. Hezekiah is doing that as a representative of, of what Jesus would do later. But we have to start by receiving grace. When we show up on Sundays and, and we remember that we're a mess and that Jesus took on the cost of all our sin as a sin offering, as a blood sacrifice, as a scapegoat for our sin. And once we receive that grace, we become conduits of grace. We live in probably the most judgmental time that maybe America has ever seen. It's all there out in the open. You read it every day. People are constantly criticizing one another for not falling into line with what they think that they should be doing. It's basically what social media is. It's a constant judgment on you for the way that you live your life not being good enough. Self-righteousness is at an all-time high. People, people today will end a relationship with you because you, you, you buy a brand that they find unethical. There are people who will end a relationship because you're not living pure enough under the law of our time. There are people who will end a relationship with you because you voted for the wrong party in the last election cycle. There are people who won't engage with you as a friend because you don't give the right virtue, virtue signals, because you don't show that you are with the right people. Maybe it's, you know, it could be people on the left and the right. There's so many good examples. I'm sure you're thinking in your head, but like, like literally everybody wants to cancel everybody because it's easier to push you away and keep you over there and not engage with you and just call you unclean and unworthy of my love and unworthy of my relationship and push you away. But the way of God is to say you're messy and you're broken and you don't deserve it. 
but I'm going to pray to God on your behalf that the holiness of God might invade your life. What we see with Jesus is that when he enters into spaces that are unclean, that his power makes the space clean instead of him being defiled by it. And that's what's happening here. The priests lead the people in, in worship by mediating between God and them through prayer and through worship. And that's what we do. We do the same thing as God's people, as priests today. We pray for people. We, we say, God, this person is nowhere near you. This person is far from you. Uh, they shouldn't even come into your presence. They're, they're just so messed up. But because I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, I'm going to enter in for them. I'm going to go before the mercy seat. I'm going to ask and intercede on their behalf and say, God, would you, would you make them holy? Would you bring them to you? Chapter 29, verse 27. Then Hezekiah ordered the burnt offering be placed on the altar. As the burnt offering was presented, songs of praise to the, to the Lord were begun. They were accompanied by trumpets and other instruments of David, the former king of Israel. The entire assembly worshipped the Lord as the singers sang and the trumpets blew until all the burnt offerings were finished. And then the king and everyone with him bowed down in worship. King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the psalms written by David and by Asaph, the seer. So they offered joyous praise and they bowed down in worship. When God's grace enters into the picture, people turn to God. That's it. When they realize that there's, there's nothing that can keep them away from God's love and that he's going to make a way for them, what happens is the people, we think that we can use shame and judgment to get people to change. Our complete social psychology as Americans is this belief that if I punish you, you'll do what you should do. That if I give the right disincentives and the right incentives, you'll act the way that you're meant to be. But what God does... Did my microphone go up? Okay. It just turned me down. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was off. Uh, but what happens is when we are given shame and judgment, we pull back and we run away because we're afraid. Just like in the garden. They were afraid and they were ashamed and so they ran away from God. And so God chased after them and graciously covered their shame with the blood of animals so that they could be in relationship with him. This is God's plan for reconciliation of all creation is to lavish his grace and love on people and then see them transformed by relationship with him instead of transformed by judgment. And what happens is God shows up in a massive way. They celebrate Passover, which is normally a seven-day festival. And it's such an amazing time. They're, they're like, let's roll it back. And they do seven more days of Passover because they were so hungry for God's presence. They were worshiping and they were praying and they were worshiping in a way that they just couldn't help but continue to stay in God's presence because they'd been hungry for God's presence. They've been waiting for God's presence to show up. They've been hoping and hurting and just wishing that God would come. And those who were waiting, they were finally satiated. They were finally seeing God's presence come in power. And this is the world we live in. It's desperate for the real thing of God's presence. And just 
like the priests who are consecrated by the offerings and the prayers of Hezekiah, they became conduits of God's blessing to incredible true worth and true worship and repentance and praise. This is what happens when the royal priesthood of all believers, when we join God's family. We consecrate our lives through God's grace and in community. We participate with God in the death of Jesus, but one of our most important roles is to intercede for the world, to intercede for them so that God's grace might bring transformation. In chapter 30, it says this, the entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, including the priests, the Levites, all who came from the land of Israel, the foreigners who came to the festival, and all those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in the city. For Jerusalem had not seen a celebration like this one since the days of Solomon, King David's son. And then the priests and Levites stood, and they blessed the people. And God heard their prayer from his holy dwelling in heaven. When we're transformed by grace, we give it away to the world around us. And the means by which, one of the means by which that happens is that we pray for our community. We pray to consecrate our community ahead of their transformation in the gospel. Through our faithful presence, God creates holy places and holy people. Set apart places that are meant for his presence to dwell, like our bodies and our lives that have been cleansed of idolatry so that where we go, we bring with us the love and power of God. We create holy places where when we gather, we, we turn ordinary buildings like the drabest gym on the face of the planet into a beautiful little enclave of God's kingdom living in complete authority by his people submitted to him. This is holy place because God himself is here with us. This week I was, uh, I was, I was trying to think of how, how I can illustrate what I'm talking about. And um, this week we were, we were having Teacher Appreciation Week for the preschool. Um, and I was, I, was, I was privileged to sit with them in their weekly meeting. And it's, they're a beautiful team that loves each other and loves our kids. And every week they put on their whiteboard like a couple of families that they're praying for. Like, every week, they have two families that they put on the board, and they pray for And they, one of the families that they're praying for is a family that we've met through T-Ball and our kids' schools, and our kids went to a different preschool before Wonder School existed. They're neighbors and friends of ours, and we love this family. They're people that we love and we care for, and they've been deeply hurt and have removed themselves from faith because they don't want it. But this little group of teachers, four of them, this week they bowed their heads and they went before the throne of God and said, God, would you have mercy on this family? Would you care for them and let them experience your love even though they don't want it and they don't deserve it? Interceding on behalf of people. And then when I saw her this week, I, I told her that I just 
really appreciate how she loves her kids and how she serves her kids. I just, I just gave her a blessing by speaking truth over the amazing things God made in her to let her see that she's a good mom and that she's doing a great job. This is what it means to be God's people who intercede before the Father. We not only pray for them from a distance, but up close, we enter in and we bless them by saying, may God work in your life. Um, on Tuesday night, we had wildlife here. There was like 55, 60 kids just playing volleyball. and so It was nuts, like just crazy in here. And uh, it, it was a good deal. We had like a, about a dozen from the capital area where we lead, and we got to connect. And at the end of the night, I'm, some kids are getting picked up, and I hear this, this someone from the SUV there call out my name. He goes, Robert, Robert. And I was like, what's going on? Like, who's yelling at me? And I think I'm in trouble. And I walk over, and in the front seat of this SUV is a friend of mine from high school that I've been praying for off and on for 20 years. I invited him to Young Life Camp when we were high school kids. He's a Mormon guy that we've had spiritual conversations over and over and over again. And here a generation later, his kid is coming and got to hear me pray over her the blessing of God's presence. I got to share with her God's love and passion for her. This is what it means to be mediators of God's presence in the world, to pray for people and then to speak God's blessing into their life. Um, this might be weird to you, and it's kind of weird to me still, but when I meet with like people that I do business with, sometimes they share with me. Uh, there was a guy that I was, I was trying to sell like this marketing package to, and we're sitting there talking, and he shared with me that like he's really been struggling physically. And so I go, okay, like just setting aside all the business stuff, it, would it be, is this, this is weird, but could I just like put my hand on you and pray for healing? And that was weird for me too. It's probably the first time I ever did that with somebody who's not like a part of my spiritual family. But he said, sure. So there in his office, I laid my hand on his back where he had been struggling to sleep and prayed that God would bring his mercy by bringing healing to him. Now, I don't know if God entered in, but I know that he experienced God's power and presence by me trusting that God wanted to enter in in that moment. My sister Becca, I'm just going to embarrass her while she's here so that she gets to hear it. Um, there's my, old, my much older sister, Becca. She's in her mid-40s at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but... They, they moved into their house 12 years ago, 14 years ago? 13, 14 years ago. It's in North Nampa, and when they moved in there, almost nobody lived there. It was like the middle of nowhere. Um, but there was a school that had just been built, and she just started praying for kids she saw walking to that school. And then her kids got into elementary school. She started praying for her kids' friends. And then she said, well, I want to find ways to engage with them and help them understand God's love. And so she started doing these summer, like, camps where they'd come over for a couple hours in the morning and she'd just teach them about Jesus and have them do jump rope and hang out. And then she gathered a few friends who were parents and started praying for their kids together. 
And together they said, you know what, we're going to, a couple times a year, have these, they call them good news clubs, and they're six weeks long. And they've got 70 kids who show up every Thursday. I go pick up my kids. My sister back is not only watching my kids, but putting on a camp for 70 kids in an afternoon. And I show up, and there's this community of people who don't know Jesus, but know that Becca loves their kids. Because she's been praying for them. And then she's taken her life and poured it out so that people would know God's love. This is what it means to be priests in our world. It's not about holiness. It's about power. It's about us bringing the presence of God's power into the world. When Jesus left, he said, all authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples teaching them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, it says that you'll have power when the Spirit comes upon you. In Galatians 3, it says that God blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing that he gave to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive this promised Holy Spirit by faith. And Revelation 5 gives us this picture to the kingdom that's coming. It says, And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on earth. Matthew 18 says, where two or more are gathered as my followers, I am there among them. You and me, we are mediators, conduits of God's power, God's grace, and God's presence in the world. So the the question is, when are we going to take seriously our our place? When are we going to start walking into rooms asking, how do I bring God's presence with me? When are we going to start asking about these living bodies, these temples that we've been giving, and that we need to drive out the things that are keeping us from God's presence? When are we going to let loose the flood of God's presence in this world? Where the reason we don't have idols is because God made himself these idols. We are his statues. Where we enter as his imago Dei, we bring with us the authority of the king of heaven. When are we going to become a blessing force in the world? It's going to require us to be shaped as priests, prepared so that we know the right moves. Priests prepare so that they know what to do. It's why we are learning the way of Jesus so we know how to mediate the presence of God in this world. That's why we need to take seriously the real spiritual authority that's been entrusted to God's people. And what we see from Hezekiah is it doesn't doesn't start from a place of power. It starts from a place of weakness. It starts with repentance, and then it moves on to prayer, and then it becomes celebration. So that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and the kids are probably going to join us because I'm sure they've been back there too long. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to start with um, some time of prayer of repentance. And we're going to clear the idols from the temple of our lives and from the temple of the church. And so I want to invite you, close your eyes with me. Lord God, we, your people, your holy dwelling place, we continue to let idols take us away from your presence, to defile us, to to turn consecrated places that are set aside for your presence into ordinary places that are filled with the worldliness around us. 
Lord God, bring to our minds the places that require repentance right now. The places that require confession of sin. Lord God, I confess that I see my body as a tool to be used for my comfort and my pleasure. I see my life I see my life as a a gift that I've been given to use to take care of myself rather than others. Lord God, I confess that the idolatry around money in my life is overwhelming at times. Lord God, I confess that I pursue safety over your presence and your kingdom all the time. Lord God, I confess that I want autonomy and I want to be my own person and that I keep putting myself as the idol of my life. Lord God, we confess as your church that we have made us the center of it. That we have made this gathering and our friendship the reason why we exist. We confess that we've put our politics ahead of your kingdom. We confess that we, we see control and money as the driver rather than your presence in your life. So we pray, God, we pray, oh God, take our sins, heap them upon the scapegoat that's been driven out. Cleanse us with the blood of the lamb that has died in our place. Rip apart again the veil that keeps us from your presence that we build up and that we are repairing all the time rather than tearing down and burning up so that we can be in your presence. Lord God, we are your people and we confess and repent of that way of being and we turn and say, God, give us your kingdom and give us your presence and give us your authority so that we can be your people. Lord God, may this time of worship be great because we've been forgiven of so much and we've been given so much. Lord Jesus, have your way here. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.